Hi, I'm James, and this is James Explores the New Mutants, an issue-by-issue exploration of Marvel's comic book series, The New Mutants. Welcome to episode number 13, entitled Rampage in Rio. In this episode, I'll be examining issue number 12, entitled Sunstroke. In this issue, we'll see Roberto have a falling out with his father, and Amara will attempt to destroy Rio de Janeiro. Yeah, like an entire city. It's pretty badass. Really like this issue, and I can't wait to dive into it. So let's get started. Before we dive into this episode, let's start with the creative team. Obviously, Chris Claremont writing... Busema's doing the pencil. Mandrake's uh, got the inking and finishing. We have a new color, George Rosas, uh, also known as George Bell. He was born in 1915, and he passed away in 2000, February of 2000. He's been he was in the industry for a very long time. He's an accomplished inker and colorist. He is one of Jack Kirby's Silver Age inkers, um, and he's well-known for that. He's worked for DC, EC Comics, Marvel Comics, and in later years for Marvel, obviously he was doing coloring, and that's what he's doing on this book. He's, the, like I said, the colorist for this, this issue. Horzacheski's doing the lettering. Uh, Luis Jones is uh, editor of the X-Men titles still. And Jim Shooter's editor-in-chief. So that's our creative team for this issue. Um, very solid creative team. And um, if you thought the last story arc was good, um, we're just tying up those threads. So there's a few dangling threads we're going to wrap up in this issue. And then it's going to be back to back to school for these new mutants. So let's dive in. Our story opens... In Rio de Janeiro, we see a towering skyscraper. It is the home of da Costa International SA, the headquarters of Emmanuel da Costa's massive industrial empire. It's worldwide influence, something he forged from his very hands. And we see Emmanuel, he's walking in to the lobby and he's talking to the doorman they have a very good jovial rapport and our narrator uh, gives us a little background of uh, Emmanuel da Costa and I'm just going to read it right from uh, right from the issue he is wealthy almost beyond imagination imagining but it was not always so. His parents and he were little better than slaves, and he still wears the scars of his master's whip. The happiest day of his life, before his son was born, of course, was when he finally drove that man, heir to one of the noblest families in Brazil, to ruin. All his life, if da Costa wanted something, he went out and got it. And heaven help anyone foolish enough to get in his way. And... He he's riding up the elevator, right? So now we've got a little bit of his backstory. You know, he's driven by a sense of lifting himself up 
of not being in a position of near slavery and not being beaten, right? To control his own destiny and to give to his family better than he had. And we learn that from the banter which he has when he arrives in his office. He rides his private elevator and he comes, that arrives and the doors open into his office and we see his son greets him. Roberto da Costa, dressed in a suit and tie, uh, kicked back in his chair behind his desk and his father is surprised to see him. And Roberto, you know, and he engaged in some banter. Roberto is... Has, you know, he's he's poking his father essentially. He's he's poking him. He 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 wants him to know that, you know, he knows what happened, and he he says, you know, may I should have called, uh, warned you of our revive, you know, warned you that I was going to be here, but you know, I wanted it to be a surprise, much like uh, he had been surprised that by the assassin hired by his father's hands and his father doesn't even acknowledge it he just tells him you're sitting in my chair and and Roberto is extremely disillusioned he remind, is remembered uh, talks to his father of this time that they were sitting below the cross that sits on the hill above Rio de Janeiro and his father held him on his knee and he and he pointed he waved his hand across the city and he said one day all this will be your son and Roberto believed him, even though his father was joking. He really believed him. And he explains to his father everything he had done throughout his life was to make his father proud of him. And that now things have changed. That he's no longer concerned about that. that certain things have occurred that have changed his desire. Um... And that he doesn't want to be a part of anything his father has to offer him. And his father, he goes to get a cup of coffee and, and, he, and he tells his son, you know, you've, you've never known what it is to want. You don't know what it is to be poor. And so he, wants, he warns him to think before he pushes him too far. Uh, because he's at the edge of an abyss. And he has much to lose if he continues this. Roberto says, well, he doesn't feel like he's the one who's, uh, you know, making this decision. He feels like his father is actually pushing him into the abyss. It's him who's, who's forced this, this to occur. And, and he, he, he gets, he's mad. He's really upset. And his anger just rises. It's so typical with Roberto. He enters a conversation so coolly and very controlled. But as it goes on, he just, his anger boils up from within and he just can't restrain it. And he accuses, he, you know, he, he, he makes an accusation. You know, he knows. He, he tells his father, I know that, you know, to gain access to the, to the, to the fabled riches, um, within the Andes Mountains, that you were going to have that assassin of yours kill my, you know, my mother and, and me, your wife and your son. And his father doesn't even look at him. He just says that was never the intent. And Roberto says, what, well, I suppose it was just an accident, right? Somebody simply exceeded their authority. And Roberto demands to know why. For what? For wealth? Power? Didn't we have sufficient already? 
And he tells him, Roberto's father, Emmanuel, tells him his reasons are his own. And they're not of Roberto's concerns. And Roberto demands to know. He has a right, he says. Um, because suppose that Castro had succeeded. Uh, would, like, would, would his father have even mourned the loss of his children, child and, and his wife? Would he have even cared? And his father spins on him. And he says, he tells him to don't take, take that tone with him. You know, he's his father. He's still not willing to give him answers to even discuss this. And the two get face to face with one another. And Roberto just keeps pushing. Who loves me? And who loves me? And mother too, no doubt. I look for the man I remember. I want, I need to find him. Only he's gone. A stranger stands in his place. I mean, they are face to face. And Roberto's looking into his eyes, but he can't see the man that he once that he, that once cared about him. And his father raises his hand and Roberto transforms into the, into Sunspot. And he, and he tells him, you know, you're not going to hit me. I, my mutation gives me strength here. And you think you're going to take me over your knee. You've got another thing coming. And he just keeps, you know, he, he basically lays out an ultimatum for his father, telling him, you know, you forget about the, the Andy Mountains and, and that lost land that's out of, you know, you, you no longer are going to take anything from that. It's, you just forget it exists. Because if I find out from my friends in that region that you are in there trying to extract those resources, myself and the new mutants will stop you. And his father, ba- I mean, that's it. He tells him, you know, Basically, that he's he's disowning him. If he, if he leaves, if Roberto walks out that door, if he leaves, if he doesn't, you know, correct the situation, he'll no longer be his son. And Roberto turns to him and says, "Then, sir, I now have, am, I now am, half an orphan." And he gets in the elevator, and his father obviously upset by this, just whimpers his name and crushes the coffee cup that was in his hand. Um, he then goes to his phone and he he calls Sebastian Shaw. And Shaw answers, obviously, and, and Emmanuel says, I want in the inner circle. I want to be in the inner circle, Period. He's made his decision. So through this grand manipulation, Shaw now has what he wanted, which is the pawn that would help possibly bring influence and control over Roberto da Costa. So Shaw's long game to manipulate, that started in issue number two, to manipulate Roberto da Costa is beginning to take fruition. Roberto... He's upset, obviously. He, he's going down the elevator, and he's taking his tie off. And he, and he thinks he's a fool. He should have listened to his mother. His mother had warned him not to confront his father. She didn't want to. She'd stayed there in Nova Roma to help these people, to, to bring them up to speed so they knew what, what the outside world was like. And she had warned Roberto not to confront her father. And... He's surprised. He's like, why don't you want to stand with me? You know, we need to confront him. He did. He, he tried to have us killed. And she says, 
that she still loved him. And he says, after all that, and she's like, well, at one point there was a good man there, and I believe that there still is, and we just have to find him. And if we confront him, I'm afraid that we'll just we'll just solidify his evil side. It won't help. We won't draw out his, his kindness. And Roberto's beginning to think that maybe his mother was right. He overreacted. He, he shouldn't have confronted his father in this way. And he's pretty upset right now. He, he lost the man that he was super close to. If you remember in issue, you know, in that origin story, you know, his father was at the soccer game. His father rushed to the field. Just a few issues ago, he was wishing his father was in Nova Roma so he could talk to him because they were like best friends. So he lost something extremely dear and close. Somebody that he loved dearly. Um, yeah, so that's the beginning of this issue. So I guess this is as good a place as any to bring up um, a fantastic book that really helps to interpret the New Mutants. Um, it's by Ramsey Fawanza. I hope I'm saying that correctly. I'm probably butchering the name. Uh, and the book's entitled The New Mutants, Superheroes and the Radical Imagination of America Comics. And in the last chapter of that book, the f- two last chapters before the epilogue, um, and that one right before the last one, uh, it's about the Hellfire Club and the X-Men. And the chapter following that is about the New Mutants, really in-depth exploration of the New Mutants. And one of the contrasts uh, that's drawn in that book is the economic nature of Sam and Roberto. And there's other amazing <laughs> contrasts. But their two characters represent two uh, extremely different socioeconomic classes, right? Roberto's comes from extreme wealth. His father raised himself up from foot, you know, from the depths of po- poverty, almost servitude, almost slavery. Uh, whereas Sam, his father was a working staff, blue collar, working in the coal mines. And Sam had the chance to be the first in his family to go to college. And that was derailed with the death of his father. And only after Right, And then he went to work in the mines just like his father had so that he could support his family. He replaced his father. So he's very much a working, stiff, blue-collar, you know, barely making ends meets, lots of brothers and sisters. And only through the accident in the coal mine and the, the value that is placed on his mutant abilities after that accident, right, when his mutant powers manifest, Donald Price sees on camera Sam and hires him because he is a mutant, right? His mutant powers make him valuable enough to increase his salary, to make him of value in society. The opposite is true for Roberto. He almost has the exact opposite experience. His mutant powers manifest and more is revealed and we see that, you know, he is fighting against the, his father and wealth. And because he, shuff, he, he sloughs off the burdens of wealth and inheritance, he is now placed almost at the level of Sam Guthrie, where the two become fast friends, even though they're from two extremely different social economic backgrounds. It's a really interesting book, and if you get the chance to read it, it adds like a new 
multiple different perspectives. And so when I read the issues, I look at them differently than I might have uh, had I not read the book. So I highly recommend it. It's it's fascinating. Anyways, that's that's kind of the tie-in. I just figured figured it was a, it, appropriate because here we have Roberto walking away from his inheritance in a in a fight with his father. Elsewhere at the beach at Ipamima, it's a extremely l- lavish place beautiful sand beaches as long as the eyes can see and this is where beautiful successful wealthy people go to sit on the beach and the beach is crowded this day the sun is out it's a beautiful warm hot day the sun is blistering and magma amara sits with her friend danny moonstar on the beach they sit under the sun and sunbathe as girls do, Amara is surprised by the garment she's wearing, the, the bathing suit. She, is, she, she likes how smooth and, and silky soft the, the, the bathing suit is. And it's like, it's, and, it, and it's warm's fitting. It's like a second skin. Um, and she is surprised, however, by the buildings, how this the city of Rio de Janeiro is so large, it makes Nova Roma look like a small village in her eyes. The sun is extremely warm, and she can't help but be taken aback by that. The jungles outside of Nova Roma were were warm and and humid, but this sun is just abrasive. It just is nonstop. It's it's a, just pounding pounding down on them. She begins to think of home and wishing that she was still there. She remembers her conversation with her father. She didn't understand why he wanted to leave. She didn't want to leave. She wanted to stay there with, with her father in Nova Roma, right? She remember, remember she had been running from the black priestess, hiding in the, in the jungle with um, other women from Nova Roma, in, in blackface to, so that the black priestess couldn't find her and, and sacrifice her and, and steal her life force. It was all a precaution to protect her. And her father, when she returned to her father, she had manifested these fantastic powers that now she had no control over. Um, and Nova Roma had changed. It had been breached by outsiders. The outside world was coming and there was nothing that they could do to stop it. And so... He thought it was in their best interest for him to learn from Roberto's mother about the outside world and her go to the outside world to get an education so that they, she could come back and help him, you know, educate his people of the outsiders, right? So there's that purpose. And she's not satisfied with that answer. She, she thinks it's actually because she's a monster. She knows what people are saying about her. She's heard what they've said. She knows they're afraid of her, and she believes her father is too, and she's getting angry as this conversation's going on. He's trying to alleviate those fears, right? He doesn't want her to be fearful of this. And in their conversation, the floor begins to shake, and a magma fountain shoots out through the floor, spraying lava all over the floor. She's afraid, and she runs to her father. He takes her in his, in his arms, and, and he comforts her. And she begins to see like that 
you know, going maybe to Xavier's isn't a bad idea. Learning how to control her powers, because if, if not, her powers will control her. And this is a direct correlation to the idea of Selena Wright, that if Magma stays here and doesn't learn how, about her abilities, doesn't learn to control them, there's a chance that those powers might control her, and they could corrupt her. That is her fear. That's her darkest fear. She does not want to be like Selena. And that possibly might be her father's darkest fear. And so he encourages, no, you know, you need to go. It pains me to send you away. I don't want to send you away, but it's in our best interest. It's best for you if you learn how to control this because, you know, it'll keep you and the people you care about safe. And so they agree she's going to go back with the new mutants to learn how to control her abilities with Professor Xavier. This daydream of hers is interrupted as these young men in Speedos, it looks like, definitely in Speedos, uh, approach her. And they're cut and they're, you know, what I guess would be considered handsome men of that time. They come up to her and they say, you shouldn't be smiling on a beautiful day like You should be smiling. You shouldn't be frowning on a beautiful day like this. And they begin hitting on her. And Danny tries to wave them off. Hey, we're not interested. You know, we're just here relaxing, fellows. Thanks, though. Um, and one of them reaches down. He pulls Amar up into his arms and he's being overly aggressive with her. He forcefully kisses her against her will. Um, consent issues, but this is the 80s. And he's apparently just a slime ball. Uh, he kisses her and she's not happy about it. And she lets him know. She yells at him, I'm no strumpet dog on hand me or... And before she can she even realizes it, or Danny can even say anything to stop her. Her anger gets out of control, and the f- ground erupts beneath, you know, behind her, sending fire cascading into the sky, and a massive uh, pillar of volcano comes up out of the beach. It sprays lava and says people you know, hurtling people from, you know, the area, and people begin to scatter from the beach. Amara has lost control of her abilities here on the beach. Her rage, just like in Nova Roma, has released her abilities, has allowed her to, you know, manipulate the magma beneath the surface of the crust of the earth. And uh, things aren't looking too hot right now. Elsewhere, a Catholic church, somewhere in Rio de Janeiro. Rain Sinclair timidly, awkwardly walks into the house of God, this house of God, and immediately her thoughts go to Reverend Craig. And in this scene, it's, it's really just rain in her thoughts. It's almost a a prayer that we are reading as she is in this in this Catholic church. And and as I was saying, her thoughts immediately go to Reverend Craig, the man who raised her, the man who called her a demon and tried to kill her. He he was a reverend of, of the uh Scott Presbyterians and he he saw Catholics as demons. Um and so she's not sure if this is where she should be, but it's a house of God and she needs to speak to God. She needs to pray. And, and, and any, any church should do, right? That's the way she sees it. And, and so she goes in and she 
goes to a pew and, and kneels down on the kneel the kneel the railing, the kneeling post or whatever it's called. And she wonders to herself if he'll even listen to her. She's just a small girl, and he's such a mighty being, the creator of all the universe and everything that she sees. He he certainly has no time for her. And even if he does, she's a mutant. And she's been called a demon by a reverend, and and so many people hate mutants, and and they're they're spawns of Satan, and even in her own eyes, she hates herself. She hates herself, and she projects that onto this supreme being, and and of course, she sees that she believes that God is going to condemn her for to hell for what she is. But she, she continues anyway, and this, and this quickly becomes a confession of her sins. She confesses to this, to God in, the, in this house of God. And, and she begins talking, thinking, praying about what happened, confessing what has happened in Nova Roma, right? That, that she had aided Senator Galileo and it almost killed Amara and her father. It almost enslaved the citizens of Nova Roma. And then she's been so wicked and horrible to her friends, the people she cares about most. She's treated them so poorly. And she's not sure why. She confesses her love for Sam at this moment and realizes that Sam only has eyes for Amara. She doesn't even see rain and that she's also jealous of her friend Danny her best friend Danny Danny's been spending all her time with Amara since Amara joined the group since they've come to Rio de Janeiro Danny's had no time for rain rain's been alone isolated and she's jealous it's not fair And then finally, she asks the question, do they only care, do they even care about me? Or do they only care about the fact that I can change into the wolf, my, my, my werewolf form? Is it the mutation that they care about? Is that why they include me? Is that why I'm their friend? She doesn't get an answer to this because she, her prayers, her thoughts, everything's interrupted. She's jolted, shocked. As Sam storms into the church, he tells Rain he's been looking for her everywhere that Amara's run off. She's missing. And there's earthquakes all over the place. And they need Rain to treat, they need Rain's abilities to help her track Amara down. How ironic that in the moment she's questioning whether the only thing they care about, Sam, the man that she loves, she's attracted to, her her whatever you want to call it, high school crush, whatever you want to call it, is the one who's telling her what he needs from her is her mutant powers. The things that she sees these people is beginning to accuse these people of care, the only thing that they care about her for is this mutation, her abilities. How ironic. Elsewhere, not far from the beach, on the streets of Rio de Janeiro, we find Amara in her bathing suit, scared, terrified, cars honking, beeping, 
screeching to a stop as she's standing in the middle of the road. She's terrified and confused. She doesn't know what's going on. These chariots she calls the car's chariots are moving so fast. They keep honking at her and, and she dodges out of their way. She's terrified and she wishes she was at home. This world is strange and she doesn't know what's going on. She runs. The sun is still pounding down on her. It's so hot. It's abrasive and she's not used to it. She wants to be shielded from it. She wants out of the sun. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the road, she just stops and she begins to weep. She's crying. She covers her face. Cars continue to honk and beep at her. They're yelling. They want her out of the way. And she starts to call. She yells, help me, help me. And a cop blows his whistle. He puts his hand up. He runs to her aid. He... he tells her it's going to be okay and that he's there to help her and that he asks if she's lost or what he can do to help and he escorts her out of the road. She tries to speak to him and she's speaking English. And he, he's like, oh, a foreigner. Well, you must be on drugs. He accuses her of being on drugs. She can't understand him though because he's speaking uh, Brazilian, Portuguese, right? And he grabs her arm tight. He's going to take her down to the precinct. He's going to arrest her. Because of obviously she must be up to no good. She's, not, she's from the outside world. She's a foreigner. She doesn't belong here. In this moment, she's terrified again. Her, her anxiety and fears rush back into her. And as a result, her powers, she, she unwittingly reacts. Her powers react. The street begins to quake. And fissures open up and rock spires erupt, throwing cars out of the way. The cop's terrified, obviously, and he releases Amar, and, she's cre- and she cries, no more, no more. And, and thankfully, you know, Sam was right. The, they all need to be looking for Amara. She's in trouble. And they can hear the screeches and the honking horns and the sirens, and they know they need to act quickly. And, and the, the new mutants run out into the street and they see these fire in the road and and massive pillars of rock jutting out of the ground. It looks like a war zone. Parts of buildings are damaged and, and people are running to and fro. Cars have been flipped over. They know Amara's been here, obviously. And Rain, she transforms to her wolf form. They have to track her down. They've got to help her. They've got to get her out of the streets because she's causing damage and people are going to get hurt. Rain, as she transforms, she tries to try. She tries to track her. She can't pick up a scent. And she begins to cough. And and the sulfur, just this large amount of sulfur from these fissures that are tied to lava, magma flows beneath Earth's crust. They're releasing sulfur, and it's choking the air. And it's making Rain's ability to track completely useless. She's unable to do it. And they don't know what they're going to do. How are they going to find Amara? Bobby's like, well, obviously, look. There's this destruction. All we have to do is follow the destruction and the, and the sirens and the, and the noise. And we'll find her. It's not going to be that hard. And they begin their search. Meanwhile, Amara is stumbling through a derelict lot elsewhere in Rio de Janeiro. The sun has baked the earth here dry and hard as concrete. 
and the sun, it just continues to beat down on her. It's like a blast furnace. The air is stifling. And I really like this narration. Amara slowly, thankfully, loses her mind. And she calls out to the Lord of the Sun to torment her no longer and let her join with uh, his celestial glory so that they'd be one forever. And we see this really interesting sequence of panels. Um, and essentially she is transformed into a god. Her blood is rushing, is replaced by molten lava, and her life is bound to that of the planet. And she draws strength and vitality from the planet and marvels at her capability that she can lay waste. She can totally destroy cities. And she does so. She destroys Rio. She's a giant being and she's blasting flames and igniting the city beneath her on f in, in flames. And there's nothing in her eyes in this moment wrong with that because she's a goddess and goddesses deserve to have sacrifices. And she realizes that she is capable of reshaping the face of the world. And, but then she begins to think, what is she going to do with the people that would stand before her righteous wrath? What will she do? Kill them? And this you know, this causes her mind to just kind of break. And it's described by the narration as a fissure opening in her mind. And at the bottom of this black pit is Selena, the black priestess, the woman. And, and at that moment, she falls to the ground, collapses, and, and we lose the imagery of magma uh, in her in her form. And we see the girl, Amara, collapsing on the ground and beginning to black out. And the narration calls us back to the fact that Selena, this evil priestess, had killed Amara's mother and was going to try to sacrifice Amara. And Amara's yelling, she's not like her. I won't become like her. And she would rather die, essentially, than be that but she doesn't know if she can, if she has the strength. It's, this is what she's, she's thinking to herself. So hard to maintain control over myself. So tempting, so easy to give in, give up. And then she blacks out in this moment. And she's discovered by some people that we don't, know who they are on this panel but they decided they're going to load her up and take her with them and so I'm going to talk about this momentarily because what was teased at in the Nova Roma arc and here now is really pointed to pretty pretty um, directly is that these young mutants, if they're left to their own devices and aren't trained in their use of their abilities, if they're not 
um, helped in some way, shape, or form, they will be tainted similarly to that of Selena. And we see that very directly with this this interesting, you know, like, fever dream that Amara's having, right? Where she is accepting this great power and willing to do what it with she, whatever she will with it. That she is willing to create havoc and destruction just because it brings her complete and total joy. It's what her body and her mutation allows her to do. And we see the same thing in those earlier issues back in Nova Roma, the last couple issues where Danny is being made into the apprentice Selena, and Selena sees this as the natural course of things, that there is no other option. This is it. And why would you do anything else with your abilities? And it brings me back to the question that is it a foregone conclusion that you that a mutant is more capable of giving into darker desires and the use of their abilities if they aren't properly trained to use their abilities. I mean, depending, I suppose, on the ability, it does seem like it's a likelihood. Like you think of Karma, she had high moral standings that that she began to compromise once she was trained at Xavier's. So she's the antithesis of this, right? Like, she doesn't fall into that. Like, she begins to question her place in the New Mutants by episode two because she's using her powers to manipulate people. And she's hated that from the beginning. She didn't want to do that. She did that at times out of necessity, and she regretted doing it then. Her brother Tran did it free willingly all the time. And he was evil and disgusting and she hated that about him and here we have Amara and Danny on very opposite scales where they've well especially Danny she's received training and to a large extent against her will being forced to, to like experiencing these joys of what she's being offered from Selena right the ability to feel the life force flowing into her body there was something exhilarating that we saw when, when she experienced that. And she fought that. She did fight against that. And here we have Amara just really giving into her powers, allowing them to just, like, stretch out. And she enjoys it. And she's struggling with it. And we don't know if it's because there's something wrong with her or is this just destiny. It's an interesting question, though, I think. I don't know. I don't really know the answer. I think maybe each character's story arc leads to different conclusions in that regard. But I just thought I'd ask it, and you know, definitely different characters react differently to certain situations. We have seen Roberto rely heavily on his powers, but in a much different way than Maybe we sing here with magma. Later and elsewhere, we find the new mutants and Rain in her wolf form. They've tracked Amara to the place where Rain is finally picking up her scent. It's a dis- dilapidated section of of, Nova, of Rio de Janeiro. 
and it's it's a very slummy it's it's slums it's slums it's where the poor people of Rio de Janeiro live and rain is fi- finally found no, Mara's scent but there's scent of the scent of other individuals here and and at this point her teammates are ecstatic that uh, that she's got the scent and and Sam reaches over and, and rubs her head and he says Great job, Rain. You know, he's telling her, great job, and that you're going to be able to track them, no problem, even if they got in the car. And Rain whips around. She's she's no longer in her wolf form. She's more in that uh, transitional human form. And she looks back at Sam, telling him, don't do that. Sam, I'm not your bloody pet. And he's super apologetic and tells her he didn't mean anything by it. And And she snaps at him. Keep your hands and your thoughts to yourself from now on. That's all I ask. And I love this. Like for multiple reasons. Because it calls back directly to her thoughts in the church, right? Like, I am more than my mutation. And you need to stop taking me for granted. It's really, I think, a freeing moment for Rain. Um calling out her friend like this. So, you know, they figured out that Amara's been taken and they and they know that something's off. And Roberto explains that at times of large earthquakes, the air gets really calm and the sky takes this color and he knows that something's brewing, something's really wrong with Amara and they need to find her now before she destroys all of Rio de Janeiro. And so they run off after following, following closely behind Rain, who's leading the way, who's tracking her scent now. And they finally find her. She's in this, sh- this really dilapidated, run-down shack where a whole bunch of kids and their older sister, who's been raising them, live. And they're taking care of Amara, she is a, has a fever. She's suffering from st- sunstroke. And this girl's telling these young kids, why'd you bring her here? You should take her to her hospital. Like, we we can't help her. And somebody's probably looking for her. And we're, it's going to come down on us. And they apologize to her. And just then the doors busts open. And there stands Roberto. And his form is Sunspot. And they yell, a demon. And the little kids pick up a little stool and they charge at him. Roberto returns to his human form. And he tells them not to worry. that They're just looking for his friend. And soon the rest of the new mutants come rushing in. And Danny runs to Amara. And so does Sam. And the and, and Rain. And Roberto calms the people that live in this shack. And tells them not to worry. They're her, his friends are here to help. And Danny realizes that Amara has a huge, you know, suffering from a heat stroke. She has a fever, and it's it's really bad. And they have to cool her down now because she's she's out. Her powers are out of control. And if they can't get her to cool down, she'll, like I said, destroy the city. And so she decides much like she had done in the rainforest with rain when she began to overheat, she's going to use her mutant ability to pull uh, Amara's greatest desire from her head, the idea that cold make her, you know, snow. Because if 
you know, if she just wants to cool down, then then it'll be easy. She'll be able to do the same thing she did for Rain, which was pull the idea of snow from Rain's head. And Rain believed that she was rolling around in the snow, even though it was just psychic projections. But that was enough to help bring her body temperature down and really help Rain cool off. So Danny does her trick, pulling the deepest desire from Amara's head, and it's not what Danny thought it would be. It is not snow. It instead, it's the Grim Reaper standing over Amara and other new mutants. And Danny realizes this: her deepest desire is not, not to cool down, but her own death and the death of her friends, the new mutants. The ground begins to shake violently, and they know they're running out of time. And Danny calls for ice, but they don't have ice. Right? There's no ice here to be found. And so she tells them, you've got to find me something, some ice somewhere, anywhere to cool him down. So Sam grabs Bobby and they fly off. Sam ignites his power and, he, and as Cannonball, they, two of them fly off in the city over in search of ice. They know that there's nothing in this town, this shanty town, that's going to have, nowhere that's going to have ice. So they decide, Roberto tells them, there's a warehouse district. He, he knows Rio de Janeiro. He tells Sam where to go. And they fly there. And sure enough, there's an ice truck down below. So they try something new, something they've never done because they don't know how they're going to get ice there in time. One, if they have to drive the truck there, it'll take too long to get there possibly. Um, and if they carry it there, it obviously would melt. So Roberto tells Sam he's got an idea, but he's going to have to keep blasting. So Sam continues to blast. Bobby transforms to Sunspot, and he picks the tr- truck up. If they tried this trick and Sam were to stop blasting, he'd, they'd crash to the earth. Or, But Sam makes Bobby invulnerable, so he's able to carry the truck, and it doesn't rip his arms off. And... His sunspot form allows him the strength to carry the truck. They team up to carry this ice truck all the way back to where they need to be. As they're flying back to the shack, they see out in the bay of Rio de Janeiro, the harbor, the water's boiling and churning. A fissure's opened up, and lava's spewing out into the, into the harbor. And they know they've got to hurry, because things are getting out of hand. And they manage to get back in time. They bring the ice into the shack, and the room cools. They place Amara on ice blocks, and her body and her temperature begins to drop. The flames in her mind begin to dissipate, and are replaced by beautiful shards of crystalline ice that then shatter. Her eyes open, and she says, Danny, my friends... And they're there to greet her. And they tell her, and she asks, is everything okay? Is the city destroyed? And I said, hardly. A few streets are damaged, some cars, and there's a new island out in the harbor. But all in all, everything's all right. You didn't destroy anything. Hardly a scratch. And Amara admits that maybe her father was right to send her. She does need to learn to control her powers because she could, hurt people if she doesn't and so she's going to go with them and get to, and learn from Professor Xavier uh, so that she you know doesn't destroy things or people or turn potentially evil I think you know that's an interesting interesting comparison that is made in this issue between her and Selena I think 
Um, and Rain is overjoyed at that, and she reaches out and, and takes Amara's hand and says that's just fine by her, smiling. So everything's okay. The new mutants are able to help Amara and save save Rio de Janeiro from being destroyed. Uh, the next issue is going to be issue 13, School Days. So this officially concludes the New Mutants romp in Brazil. Uh, they will be returning to the Xavier Mansion and their 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 uh, home in New York. Uh, and and I like I said, I really do really do enjoy this arc, and I like the exploration of mutant abilities. Right, like we've talked quite often about like how their mutant abilities are at times useful to one another or to other people outside forces, right? And we see Sebastian Shaw with an interest in Roberto and these other new mutants for sure, right? And that's why he's playing at trying to get Roberto's father, Emmanuel, into the inner circle. That's why all this cloak and dagger. Certainly to get the rights to a massive amount of resources and the power and wealth that that would generate was something that was important. But even money isn't the end-all, be-all for the inner, the Hellfire and the club and the inner circle. That is more power, like control, strength, right? And sometimes money affords you that, but like a massive force of powerful mutants would be good too. Like there's multiple ways to achieve power. So we've got that at play. So the mutants' abilities in reference to their use to the Hellfire Club. We have the mutants' abilities in reference to the the, the power that it would grant Gal- Senator Galileo. The, Sam's abilities in service to Donald Price in the origin stories, right? Um, we see Rain questioning her worth to her friends, is it just related to her mutant abilities? That's an interesting dynamic that we're beginning to see develop within these issues. Another cool thing that I really enjoy is this exploration of good versus evil and, like, how did Selena become corrupted and evil? And had she received training like that that the New Mutants and X-Men have received at Xavier's Institute, could things for her have been different? You know, and if Amara didn't receive the training, had she stayed back in Nova Roma, would she have given in to a darker side? Would the exhilaration of using her powers and destroying and reshaping the face of the Earth been too much for her to, to stand up against? Does control of one's abilities alter the way that they react and interact with those around them in the world in which they function in? I really like that idea. And we saw it flirted out with Danny in Novaroma when she is in, uh, captured by Selena. And now we're seeing in, in issue number 12, we see it played up to a larger degree with Amara. Um, And it's beautiful, and it's all driven. Interestingly enough, fear is what drives, it seems, 
a mutant's decision to turn more evil or to use their powers in a way that is harmful to those around them. Um, Interestingly enough, and I think we could go on and on about that, I think you can look at uh, Magneto and his use of his abilities, um, magmas here, you know, fear of the outside world, of the unknown, fear of, uh, of, uh, herself, right? Her mutant abilities, uh, that all leads to these abrupt and dangerous uses of her power, and I think Danny's a great example of that, right? When she didn't know how to use her powers, when it just manifested at heightened times of emotion, like, it led to, obviously, improper use of her powers. And when she becomes more confident and more secure in her life due to training and what is she has learned and how to manipulate and utilize her powers, we see more confidence and less fear from her and less likely to use her powers in a way that are irresponsible. And I think maybe that's the bottom line we come back to is that responsible use of one's powers and how that relates to the others, uh, relates to all these mutant characters in the New Mutants. It's a really, really cool series, and I definitely think Claremont by Nova Roma into issue 12 securely has found his footing and this book has a direction and it knows exactly where it's going so i can't wait until next week like i said we'll get into school days uh it should be a great great time since october's the month of halloween I really thought it'd be appropriate to try to celebrate Halloween on the podcast, especially considering that our 15th episode comes out Halloween day. And for me, 15's a mini milestone. I didn't think I'd be podcasting still. And I really enjoy Halloween. So, you know, I figured I've got to figure out a way to really celebrate it. And I did. You see, there's a four-issue miniseries, and it's about magic. Ileana Rasputin, how she changed from a seven-year-old girl to the 14-year-old girl that joined the New Mutants. You see, she got pulled into a hell dimension. Those demons, they messed with her. She was only there for seconds in, in, in the X-Men time, but they, she was stuck there for seven years of her life. In a blink of an eye for the rest of the X-Men, she aged seven years. And in those seven years, she suffered. She was tortured by demons, and her soul was corrupted. And I promise you, this arc, it's pretty downright terrifying. And it has long-range consequences for Ileana and the New Mutants. So it's a must-cover anyways, and it certainly fits. Halloween. So, Wednesday, the 31st of October, please tune in and hear the Magic Miniseries.
It'll be spooktacular. James Explores the New Mutants is, as always, recorded in Iowa City, Iowa, and is produced by myself using the Anchor app. New episodes are available every Wednesday and can be found wherever podcasts are available. You can reach the podcast on Twitter at ExploreNewMutant or via email at ExploreTheNewMutants at gmail.com. Visual companions to the episodes are available on Facebook and Instagram by searching James Explores the New Mutants. Another cool way to get a hold of the podcast is through the Anchor voicemail feature. It's really cool. It allows you, the listeners, to record about a minute-long comments or questions that are sent directly to me. I can then add those comments and questions directly to the episode. It's a great way for you listeners to get involved, and I really appreciate the feedback and just having some questions to answer. So please feel free to, to send me those questions or comments. So until next week, keep reading those comics.